0: Uh, What stories do you find most inspirational? Each of us may be attracted to different types of people who live different types of lives based on kind of your field of interest. Maybe you are uh, really inspired by artists. Uh, The person who came from a small town who was... Uh, overlooked, but got found online, out of nowhere, with this hidden talent that gained international stardom. Maybe you like sports, and your favorite player is that overlooked athlete who everyone said was too small, and who never made it, got drafted real late, but ended up completely changing the entire game. Or maybe you're inspired by business, founders, uh, the person who their teachers said would never make it, underachieved in school, dropped out of college, but then established and founded a successful startup that disrupted an entire industry and became a Fortune 500 company. Often, these inspirational stories have something in common. Inspirational stories. Often come from obscure people in obscure places. And today we're introduced to such a person. In Luke 26, uh, chapter 1, verse 26 to 38, we are introduced to Mary. The Lord God sends one of his angels to Mary, an obscure young girl likely still in her teenage years, in an obscure place of no real reputation, Nazareth. And God sends this angel to an obscure girl in an obscure place with a message of immense significance. In this passage today, we'll see a picture of God's astounding grace. And we'll see how God's astounding grace to an obscure girl reveals in her inspiring character worth exemplifying today. God's astounding grace to an obscure girl reveals in her an inspiring character worth exemplifying today. So through this passage... I want to guide us through it by asking and answering four questions. What is God's astounding grace for? Why would he choose an obscure girl for this grace? Why should we exemplify her character? And then how should we exemplify her character? Let's start with this first question. What was God's astounding grace Look at verse 28, the angel's announcements to Mary. It says, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Gabriel identifies Mary as the favored one. She is a person who's chosen to receive God's grace. That's what the favored one's means she is an object of the grace of God so what is the favor that she's receiving why is she one who is favored and who has found favor with God i think the favor that she's been given is the declaration in the next part of the sentence greetings o favored one what is the favor the lord is With you, the favor of God is the declaration and promise that God is with her. Now, this statement, favored one and the promise, God is with you, is actually kind of common that we see in instances where the Lord himself or an angel visited certain people at certain times. Let me give you some examples. You can see this in Judges chapter 6 when an angel visited Gideon. Gideon was called one favored by God. Gideon was promised that God would be with him. Yet Gideon was a wimpy coward. He did nothing to earn the statement that he was favored by God. He was even called a mighty man of valor while he was hiding from his enemies. He was favored by God because he was chosen for the task of delivering Israel from their enemies. How about Moses? In Exodus 33, we are reminded that Moses found favor with God. That God promised that he would be with him. And he was so critical that Moses had God favor and that God was with his people that Moses said, if you do not go with us as we pass through the wilderness, if your presence is not with us, then don't let us go. But Moses himself... Was a stuttering stammerer with a speech impediment. Moses himself was a man who was a murderer. Moses himself found nothing in himself that was deserving to be called favored or deserving of God to be with him, but he was favored and God was with him for the task of leading his people out of slavery and into the promised land. See, this pattern that we see reflected in Moses and Gideon and Mary too demonstrates that the favor is not necessarily something that's intrinsic to the person themselves. So, to our question, what is God's astounding grace for? God's grace is to enable a specific person to accomplish a unique task. Mary had a unique task, didn't she? Gideon's task was to himself lead the people in battle against the Midianites. Moses' task was to lead the people out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. Mary's task was to carry the one who would be the greatest deliverer and the greatest prophet to lead the final victory and deliverance of his people from their sins. Mary's task was to miraculously give birth to the Messiah. Gabriel explains the immensity of this task towards her. Verse 31, look at it with me there. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. It means the Lord, Yahweh, saves. He will be called great. He will be great, and we'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is an immense task of great significance. See, Jesus would be born of Mary. But because he would be conceived by the power of God, this child would proceed from the Father and be the Son of God himself. He would be great in significance. He would be holy This child was the savior king that Israel had been waiting for for generations. He was the promised one. Israel's kings had fallen short of their ideal. And the marvelous plan that God had for his chosen people seemed like it was perishing. And they wondered if they could really be the promised people of God. Israel was supposed to be the nation that was a light to all nations, but at this time they were lost in darkness. They were supposed to be a haven of justice and mercy for the oppressed, but they had oppressed themselves for centuries. They were supposed to be a shining star of true righteousness, but for so long they had been led astray into hollow and empty religion. And the prophet spoke of a king, who would come, who would restore this nation. He would be a king like their greatest king, David, from his very family line, but superior to David himself. But unlike David, he wouldn't just reign for one generation of over one region. He would reign forever over a kingdom with no end. This was an immense task that required astounding grace. God's astounding grace to the obs- obscure girl reveals exemplary character worth emulating. The immensity of, ta- of this t- the immensity of this task was as high as the obscurity of the person chosen for it was so low. So let's consider how truly obscure Mary really was. It'll show for us how inspiring she really is. So our next question, why choose an obscure girl? In order to better understand how obscure she was, let's compare Gabriel's interaction with Mary here to another interaction Gabriel had just a few months earlier to a man named Zechariah. It's in chapter 1, so just turn one page left with me and we'll read it together. Matthew chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter 1, we'll read verse 12 down to verse 20. After Gabriel appeared verse 12 it says and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, Gabriel, and fear fell upon him. Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak, until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which would be fulfilled in their time so gabriel makes to mary an announcement that she would bear a great child who would be holy and who would be the son of the most high gabriel made an announcement to zechariah that his wife elizabeth would also bear a son And this son would also be great. But this son would be a messenger that would prepare the people for the becoming of Mary's child, Jesus. So the prophet Malachi foretold that the Lord would come and judge the nations, but beforehand a messenger would come. This messenger would be reminiscent of the great prophet Elijah. Elijah's, the presence of the Elijah messenger would indicate that the Savior King was right around the corner. That was Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, John. He was getting everyone ready for Mary's son, Jesus. The similarities between Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah and Gabriel's announcement to Mary. Both were troubled when they saw the angel. Both were told by the angel, don't be afraid. Both were told that the child would be great and described the significance of their child's life. But there's also some differences. Let's consider the difference of the place of these announcements. The place where Gabriel met Zechariah was in Jerusalem, at the temple, within part of the holy place. The temple was the most important place in all of Israel. It was the chosen spot in all of the world, where God would manifest the power of his presence and dwell with his people in power. Everyone wanted to come to Jerusalem. On the other hand, Gabriel met Mary in Nazareth of Galilee. In the Gospel of John, we learn that And Nazareth doesn't really have a good reputation. You can probably think of some places in neighborhoods around this city where you know "Mm, this might not be a good place to drive around at certain times. And you might say, can anything good really come out of that place? That's what people thought of Nazareth. no one cared about what came out of Nazareth. Everyone wanted to go to Jerusalem. The place was different and shows the obscurity. The people were different also and show the obscurity. Zechariah was a person known and respected. He was a priest. And when Gabriel met him, he was uniquely chosen for a specific task of going into a holy place at the altar to light incense. He had a great reputation. He was highly respected. And he was uniquely chosen for a specific role. Mary, on the other hand, Mary was a nobody. Pastor Kent Hughes writes this about Mary. He says, from all indicators, her life would not be extraordinary. She would Marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, never travel farther than a few miles from her home, and one day die like thousands other before her, a nobody and a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Now, who would we naturally think is the person worth exemplifying, worth emulating, worth modeling? The priest who taught the law and was a teacher of Israel or the child who had barely even been exposed to the scriptures at all. Yet, when Zechariah, who had been teaching to the people to believe God's word for his whole life, now hears a divine message from an angel, he doesn't believe it. He still wants another sign. Yet when Mary, the obscure person, hears the divine message, she believes. Zechariah did not believe that there would be a fulfillment. But in Luke 1.45, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth says that she believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. The unknown and uneducated teenage girl from a ridiculed place has a faith that surpasses an aged and experienced priest who serves at the temple both received grace but one has a more inspiring character the obscure one see we often look to the lofty to be our examples god looks to the lowly So, why would God show his astounding grace to an obscure girl? Because the light of his glory shines brightest through the lowliest of people. Mary saw herself as a servant of the Lord. Do you see yourself like that? A servant whose only duty is to do the will of the master, who is fine laboring in obscurity without being noticed or known. The light of God's glory shines brightest through the lowliest of people. But these. this is not an easy attitude to cultivate. Obscurity, loneliness, humility, all of us in each of our life experiences feel drawn in the sinfulness and pride of our heart the opposite direction. This is a hard attitude to cultivate whether you're a mom homeschooling young kids or a student striving against other students for scholarships or a middle-aged person who looks back just wondering, where has my life gone? See, we all live in a culture, think of it like a river, the world that we live in, with an undercurrent. The undercurrent of a river will slowly and subtly pull whatever is in that river in the same direction. And the under-culture, undercurrent of the culture we live in is pulling us slowly, subtly, and imperceptibly towards attitudes of pride, attitudes of ambition, because we live in a culture that values the pursuit of success and personal performance. See, we are all... We all can be caught in the idea that our self-worth, that our value, that our personal dignity is directly determined by how successful we are. And without realizing it, we can be caught in this current fully downstream and far away from the lowliness that God wants out of us. From the humble hearts that he desires in us. And ironically, this symptom plagues even the most successful people in us. When he turned 50 years old, Michael Jordan had an interview with ESPN. And he was confronted with this very same thing. This this pull and drive to seek significance in the pursuit of success because of the fear of obscurity. The journalist writes this, his his self-esteem, that's Michael Jordan, has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game of basketball. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past 10 years since retiring for the third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, distance, he is restless. How can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me? He asks, sitting beside, behind his desk as his cell phone buzzes with trade offers. How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? It's starting to become very evident, especially in younger generations as well, that this pursuit of success that keeps us from embracing obscurity and lowliness, that we tie our self-worth into our performance. An article in 2019 said this about young people burning out, young people especially who are creators uh, online. The article says burnout is often related to what they call value systems. Essentially, from a young age, a lot of us are taught that if we achieve or gain certain things, we will be happy. If you could imagine looking for a treasure chest your entire life, and you finally find it, and you open it up, and there's nothing in it. What I often see then, they get to the point, and it's not what they, they put all this pressure on themselves. Maybe I need to make more videos, maybe I need to make better videos, because they keep trying to fill this void of happiness. It's hard to cultivate attitudes of lowliness and obscurity because we live in a culture that's incentives and values are completely pointing the opposite direction. We are caught in the undercurrent leading us to believe that our dignity is defined by our performance and our successes. It happens to moms at home looking for their value in their kids, And measuring up to other moms they see online. Happens to young professionals who are building for their portfolios and, and building their careers and building their LinkedIn profiles and looking for relationships, but seeing how other people, other people are getting married and I'm not. And other people are buying houses and I'm not. And they're just trying not to be jealous. It happens to pastors and pulpits who feel just constantly bogged down in the problems of people when it looks like other churches have buildings and other churches have big budgets and why can't I have what they have? How do you feel it in your life? The subtle current leading you to believe that your dignity is defined in your self-worth, leading you away from humility, leading you away from lowliness like Mary. We are often a people that are anxious fretting about whether we've done enough. Or we are a people that's envious, measuring up our achievements to others. This is the psychological tax of a culture that defines their dignity by their performance in the pursuit of success and ambition. And it's a tax I can pay myself too. Yet there is good news. God's astounding grace can bring us true relief. See, in Christ, your dignity is not defined by your performances. You don't need to strive to be a known person like Zechariah. You can joyfully embrace obscurity like Mary. In Christ, your dignity is not defined by your performances. Christ already performed all that God would have required of you. He fulfilled every requirement God's law had for us in our place. See, in Christ, your dignity is also not defined by your failures. Christ suffered every loss you deserved when he died on the cross in your place. He did not deserve it, but he willingly suffered it for you in love. See, this is the astounding grace of God. Grace brings us relief from the burden of performing. Because in Christ, our dignity is not defined by our successes or diminished by our failures, but it's secured in God's unfailing and unfading love for you in Christ Jesus. Grace can relieve the pressure that you need to be somebody to have dignity. It can relieve us of the anxious fretfulness, whether I've done enough. It can relieve us from the envious comparison of whether I measure up to others. Grace crowns us with a true dignity. And when we see the crown of grace, we'll be able to recognize that all these ambitions I've been pursuing are really only like the emperor's new clothes. There's nothing really to it. the astounding grace of God that truly dignifies our self-worth, this naturally answers the next question for us. Why should we exemplify Mary's character? Because you might know in principle we should be humble, we should be lowly, but the pressure and undercurrent of our culture is pushing us and our incentives and our values in the opposite direction. But here's why we should exemplify Mary's character. Grace releases us from the pressure of performance and the pursuit of success so that we can joyfully embrace obscurity like Mary. Because when we do that like her, that's where we can be used of God to make a real and lasting difference in the world. And God wants to use you. We should exemplify Mary's character because when we embrace obscurity like her, we can be used of God to make a real and lasting difference in the world. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Are you comfortable with being the unknown, weak? obscure servant. See, God wants his redeeming power and his awesome glory to be on display in the world. The person caught in the pursuit of success and ambition, though, only cares about their own glory. And we think our glory is so great Like a child might lift up a nickel in front of the sun and say, look how big it is. It surpasses the sun. That's how vain and insignificant our glory and power is to God. But you can be like the moon, reflecting the light of the beauty and the power of the glory of God. God's glory shines brightest through the lowliness. This is why we should exemplify her character. So then, if you want to, how? How can we be useful to God and exemplify Mary's character? Look at her response in verse 38. It says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. There are three things that we can do to exemplify Mary's character. First, believe that God's grace is enough. This is going to necessitate repentance. Believing God's grace enough is going to be acknowledged that what I've been pursuing for my dignity and value and self-worth is empty. Ironically, the thing that you might think is going to make your life matter might be the very thing that's holding you back from a true life of making a difference. And today might be that day to recognize it for what it is empty, and hollow. Today's the day for you to let it go so that you can have something that can, you can, can never be taken away from you. Recognize that it's empty and believe that God's grace is enough. Believe that he loves you. Believe that it's sufficient. Believe and you will find a relief Believe that his grace is enough, and then, like a servant, obey the will of your master. In the past few weeks, through the conviction of the Spirit and the kindness of people in my wife' life, like my wife, I've been confronted with some false beliefs in my life that have been preventing me from truly finding the relief and peace that grace can bring. And I've recognized that these false beliefs are really the things that are underlying a lot of the bad decisions that I can be prone to make. See, I can be prone to believe wrongly that God doesn't know how to make me happy. And that I need to seek it from myself. And that if I really believed God's word as he demands me to, I wouldn't be at peace and it wouldn't be fulfilled. And because my heart can subtly believe this, even though I wouldn't say it with my words, my actions can prove it, um, I can justify disobeying the will of my master. See, God's will is not something that complements the way you live your life. It's something that invades and disrupts your life. Mary said, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. And think about the implications of her obedience. The implication of her obedience was that her physical body would be directly invaded and disrupted by carrying a child that she didn't expect to have. Being a servant means doing the master's will whatever the cost. The good news is your master loves you, knows what is best for you, and he, through his will, can make you fulfilled and satisfied and can make a real difference through you. Oh, that we would have the attitude like the servant Jesus commended who said, I'm only an unworthy servant. I've only done what is required. Believe his grace is enough. Obey his will, but then we can exemplify our character by rejoicing in the Lord. See, look at her response to who God is and what God has done for her in verse 49. She sings with joy that she would be chosen to be used of God. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things and holy is his name. When we do our master's will, knowing that his grace is enough, believing that he is able to make a real difference and lasting difference in the world through us, it will produce joy in us because ultimately God's desire to use you is not for your glory and is not for your name, but it is for the magnificence magnificence of his name. He is the sun. You can be the moon. Believe his grace is enough. Obey his will as a servant and rejoice that you could be used of the Lord. This is the character Mary exemplified. I hope that her inspiring obscurity will inspire us to embrace a life of obscurity so that we may truly Be useful to the Lord and make a real and lasting difference for his name. Let's pray.